a bit lit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds. Eric, hello, how are you doing? Good, um, how are you? I'm doing good too, thank you. Really uh, thrilled that you're joining us. Can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work, please? I'm uh, Eric Wade. I'm a medievalist. I'm currently uh, working at the University of Bonn in Germany, um, but I did my PhD at uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, and I work primarily on the sort of global origins of ideas of like sex and sexuality and race in medieval English literature. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to unpack how it is that our kind of earliest understandings of these kind of categories of identity um, in English language literature didn't just emerge, you know, um, out of nothing in, in England, but actually were produced by England's contact with the outside world. That's helpful and that helps me with my, with my first question then, which is um, the relationship between the global origins of sex and race, but at the same time seen through the lens of English literature. Um, how do you move between those two, those two worlds, if that question makes sense? I, it's a th thank you. That's really that's a really useful question. I mean, I think in a lot of ways that um, when we're looking at the very earliest English literature, it's so heavily influenced by outside literatures. Like what they come to think of as literature is so much influenced by, say, the classical tradition, by what's happening in the Carolingian courts. So you get somebody like King Alfred the Great, who translates a bunch of books into English that he says are the books that are sort of most needful for men to know. And they're all, almost all from the continent. And so there's just this, I, I, I think in a lot of ways, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we're not if we're not recognizing the extent to which literate culture, at least written literate culture, in early England, say before 1200, was just incredibly, incredibly influenced um, by the vestiges of the Roman Empire, by what's happening on the continent, um, all the kinds of things like that. Thank you very much. Um, and what would this is a huge question, so apologies, but. Um, <laughs> How how would such pe people, how would that particular time period have understood the very idea of sex and race? Uh, how, might, how might they articulate those two ideas? Like I say, it was a really uh, it's, question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really big, I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. I mean, to some, ex to some extent, right, there, there, isn't, there isn't a term, there isn't a precise term for either thing. In this in this period, um, and so when we're using words like that, we're we're, we're speaking a little bit anachronistically to talk about, um, say, racial thinking in this in this period, and we we have to sort of put together a bunch of different things that don't necessarily that aren't necessarily explicitly brought together. So um, discourses from anti-Semitism to discourses on skin color. Um, to discourses and sort of like environmental determination. Um, and in fact, like there's not even, there's not even a clear term for sex or sexuality, sex or sexuality in this period. This is one of the, this is one of the, the huge issues. Like there's, 
even from the very earliest English literature onward, almost all of the ways that sex is described is euphemistically. They went to bed, they cohabitated, um, they, they, did, they, they did this the shameful thing, or they, they, like, they married or something like that. And so, and so part of the problem is, is a problem of, of terminology. How much are we imposing these categories on this period? Um, and what are we missing um, if we don't sort of, if we uh, don't sort of organize all of these different things together? So you've got the kind of the double issue of kind of linguistic indirection of a culture doesn't like to do, doesn't like to refer to things directly, but at the same time, you've also got the issue that even when direct speech is occurring, the way that the concepts get lined up and thought about is very alien to the way we might think about those things. To some extent, yes, to some extent, no, right? I mean, a lot of the discourses that we would think of as ter in terms of like discord of like ways of talking about race nowadays are don't necessarily explicitly have the word race in them. There's lots of euphemistic ways that people express sort of racial identities or racial categories, whether it's through it's through talking about sort of like, like if we're thinking about like Islamophobia, like thinking about talking about Muslims or Islamophobia or talking about geographical things of the Middle East, these right. kinds of things. And none of those have the word race in them exactly, but, but we recognize that they all fund, fall under this kind of category. So I think to some extent, it's not, it's not totally dissimilar from the way that, that race or sexuality functions nowadays. It's just a different set of terminology. Thank you, that's really helpful. Um, you've used the phrase several times now already, the very earliest English literature. So um, can you help our listeners understand quite what time period we're thinking about and, and perhaps also how we move from not yet English to the very earliest English? Like, what, what is that kind of emergence? <laughs> I'm asking yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, my work primarily focuses on about from about like 600 to 1200 and most of the time when I'm when uh, most of the stuff that I'm most focused on is really like the first half of that from like 600 to 900 really um so it's what we traditionally call old English literature um that's what the how they refer to it when they speak it I mean they'll call it old English but they 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 call it English literature and they call it and and this is often even before they, there is the idea of a land called England. Mm. So, so in some ways, the, the terminology that they're using to refer to their literature and to their language sort of pre-exists this kind of national grouping. Yeah. Is the word English itself then, is that a racial term, a tribal term, a term of political allegiance? Um, what is that word doing? <laughs> It's a, I mean, it's a really good question, right? It could, it could be any, it, it can be any number of those things, depending on where, on where it's used and um, who it's being used by. And we, and the, it's not the only term that they're using. Some, some, the, the term Saxon comes up sometimes. Um, there, there are a number of different, there are a number of different ways that they refer to themselves, but the primary um, 
term is English. Sometimes they call themselves angles or angle kin, like the, the kin of the angles. And all of these and these all of these words sometimes function as a descriptor, as a political description. They sometimes seem to function racially, and they sometimes seem to refer to a group, a, a linguistic group. And differentiating those things is just incredibly difficult. Yeah. Eric, in addition to your scholarly work, um, uh, viewers either will know you already or will really enjoy getting to know you from the <laughs> online work you do, the extraordinary online work you do, forcing us to rethink the medieval period via particular images. You're very, very playful with manuscripts and you're really good at making us look again at them. Do you mind telling us a bit about that work? I, this, I'm not, like I'm not trained as an art historian originally, but I, one of the things that ended up happening um, sort of through social media is that I just, I, I really love looking at manuscripts. I love book culture. I'm really, really fascinated by it. Um, even though the period that I primarily work in does not have a lot of illuminated manuscripts. Most of them come for, from after the old English period. And so I just started sharing this kind of stuff on Twitter and people seemed to respond to it really well. I, start, I, I, was, I was sharing sort of joking stuff, but like after a while you start to see, you start to see patterns, you start to see the things that people aren't talking about. I think one of the things that I see that kind of public work is doing a lot is pushing back at certain um, narratives that we have about the Middle Ages and what the Middle Ages were and what kinds of things that they cared about. Um, and one of the areas where I see that happening a lot, I'm really interested in looking at kind of homoeroticism in these manuscripts. And all of these moments that we've traditionally dismissed as like, oh, well, that's just, that's like the kiss of peace or something or something like that. And asking ourselves to think about like how these manuscripts were viewed by people um, who we would now call queer, how these manuscripts may have participated in some kind, in may have registered as homoerotic to certain, to certain people. Um, do you have any examples of that we might look at? Um, there, I, there's, a, there's a bunch of different examples. I, I know that on Twitter, one of the things that I, I had pointed to was um, sort of images of the Virgin Mary embracing um, Elizabeth. I want to say her name is Elizabeth. Let's call her Elizabeth for the purposes of this film. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one of the things. So, one of the things that I drew attention to is, is these images of Mary embracing Elizabeth, and there, and it's this very traditional set of images where where the saint meets the virgin, and they have this sort of familial. They have this sort of familial embrace, but they they are often kissing in this very very passionate way, and. Um, one of the things that's really striking about it is that these are almost in direct contrast to how the Virgin Mary interacts with her husband in these mm -hmm. images. So they are always they're always sitting very far apart. They have these they they they're, they're, they never show a lot of sort of physical affection, and there are all of these little tells in the manuscripts themselves. So several manuscripts, for example, have the kind of the chinchuk 
which is this well-known sort of early pre-modern image, but sexual gesture. Hmm. Like people, like like men would often sort of chinchuck um, their lovers. And it, it was this, this it, it's this sort of coded way uh, of suggesting something sexual. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of other stuff too. I mean, everything from that, like they appear with images of hairs, for example, which were a well-known symbol for sodomy, like all of this kind of stuff. And so it's, the question is, is not like, oh, they're really understood to be gay or they're really, they're, the, the people in the Middle Ages thought that they, they loved each other in a physical sense. But it, it is to try and understand um, what we do with the fact that there is this kind of coding that if they were a man and a woman would be read as erotic. And what would an audience used to reading that, these kinds of images in that way, think of this? Um, and whether, whether, not whether it was that it was understood that they were a couple, but can't, could, is there a possibility that some of the viewers could have seen that there? Or that some of the illustrators put that there mm. in a way that is supposed to, like in a way, in a way that's supposed to, uh, that both can be read as sexual and both can be claimed not to be. Mm. This kind of the, like like the sort of coding that you would see like during the Hollywood code in the U.S., for example, like oh like oh there's a fade to black and we can you can imagine that it's sexual or you can imagine but you can also claim to the censors that that's clearly not what's happening there yeah. um, and our. What I want to see is, is more openness, I think, to reading not for queer certainty, but for queer possibility, um, for, for the way that these texts may have, may register as queer to some people. Yeah. They may be part of a queer culture for some people, not that they are meant to signify that and only that. Right, thank you. You're, you're helping us really brilliantly here tease out the difference between creative intent and possible reception um and also yeah i love that, that distinction between queer certainty and queer possibility i mean certainty itself feels sort of unqueer doesn't it uh yeah um, yeah i really love that idea um if it's okay to return to one particular example you gave us you've given us a really wonderful kind of paraphernalia of potentially sexy things happening uh in manuscripts um, but I'm fascinated by the idea of, um, if I may call them this, of kind of hairy sex symbols in, in, in the form of hairs being symbols of sodomy. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? That'll be new to oh, many. I hair, the, the animal hair. Yes. The yeah. rabbit. I'm being it's, silly with the idea, sorry. <laughs> it's, um, this, this shows up, it's actually a leftover from the classical period. John Boswell um, talks about this in, in one of his books. Basically, the idea was there was this belief that hairs um, engaged really heavily in anal sex and that they engaged in it so heavily that they grew a new anus every year. And that you can, you could, you could like, you can 
figure out the age of a hair by how many <laughs> anuses it had. So they become this kind. Of, they become this kind of this 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 coded symbol uh, of sodomy. In the same way, I mean, you see you see this with with a number of sort of other other animals. Um, uh, for example, like like uh, hyena, hyenas are these these figures that are often read as gender bending, and they're sometimes read as symbols of sodomy. A lot of manuscript of medieval manuscript culture is like always operating on several different levels. Mm. Things can mean things. Um, things are always both, I think, symbolic and literal. I mean, that's the way they're used to reading. They're used to, they're, they under, they're, they're taught to understand the Bible as having at least four different levels of meaning. And so they, the medieval culture is used to understanding all literature as having all of these different possible symbolic levels that are interacting constantly. And even like an innocent animal in the corner of a manuscript can be a reference to a whole sequence of other things. Is it possible to dovetail back to the starting point of the conversation then and think about how your public work um, using manuscripts to think about medieval culture and perhaps to challenge preconceptions many of us have about that culture, how, how that work maps onto or doesn't map onto your research into sex and race in early English literature? It's a really good question. To some extent, I to some extent they're obviously very different things. I'm not I'm not primarily an art historian. But I think that I think that especially now given the kind of crisis that we're having in the academy, um, interdisciplinary work is the work that's going to move us forward. It's the work that's going to, it, it's the work that's going to make connections that aren't there before, that weren't there before. And so I think that, um, so some of my uh, scholarly work is influenced by, the, by this kind of online presence. Um, some of it is influenced by sort of art history. Um, and there are all of these kinds of connections that we're missing that we're missing if we're completely siloed within our disciplinary fields. So to give kind of a, a silly example, there's this um, set of old English proverbs that uh, people have been puzzling over for a really long time. And many of them are just completely inexplicable. Nobody knows what to do with them. Um, and one of the, they're called the Durham Proverbs. And one of them um, is this just sort of short joke that that's something like, um, now it is on the judgment of the pig, said the husband who sat on the swine's back. And nobody has known what to do with that. Nobody knows how to interpret that. And the, and the literary response to that, right, has been to try to understand, are, are, there, are there contextual things? Is this a version of another joke? Like, how does this connect to other kinds of texts? And people have looked at it and they said, well, what does the word husband mean here? Um, is this a sexist joke? Like, the husband is sitting on the pig, but now, like it is, um, and he's saying, well, now it's up to the pig what happens next. Is this some sort of like misogynist form of humor? But if you look at manuscripts and you look at art, men are on top of pigs all the time, <laughs> but they're on, top of, they're on top of pigs in things like books of hours. 
for example. They're because at the end, they appear, these sort of calendrical accounts uh, of the year and they appear at the end, at, they appear after harvest season because that's the time you slaughter pigs. Mm. And to slaughter pigs, there are all of these images of men astride swines, um, sort of holding them between their legs while they raise the ax. And most of these images also have a woman in them because slaughtering pigs was a two person job. And so there's a woman there holding out a pan basically to, to catch the blood as it comes out of the pig. And so it's, it seems to have actually been this sort of labor that was performed by like farming couples, by like a husband and a wife. And so when you look at it, not just in terms of the literature, but when you look at it next to the art, to the um, art, what you get is not some sort of sexist joke, but the kind of joke that the husband would make to the wife as he got ready to slaughter it. And she was holding out the sort of pan for the blood. Hmm. And it's the kind of thing I think that you can't, that it's a kind of connection I think that you can't see unless you're working in several different worlds simultaneously. So what I'm trying, what I've been trying to do is to push my work in those directions. Hmm. Um, and in terms of sort of like questions of sex and race, I think that it's, there's still a, there's still a way to go. I'm, I have been doing research, um, particularly with, with, uh, uh, race into like how manuscripts depict um, people of different skin colors, how manuscripts depict Muslims, things like that, and like how that connects to literary depictions. Um, but there's still like this is in, in a lot of ways these kinds of things are this is a really new field, mm. and there's just a lot of connections that are probably still out there to be made. Yeah, fascinating. Presumably, given the dates that you're working at, um, depictions of Muslims are depicting a religious faith which still feels very new and very recent to a Christian culture that's trying to, to represent it? It's there. I'm trying to think if there are even any depictions of Muslims from before, say, the Norman conquest. Okay. But at the same, like, but it's one of those things, like, at the same time, you think, um, the Muslim invasion of the Iberian Peninsula is the early 700s. So there is a Muslim, there is a Muslim kingdom in Europe from the early 700s onward. Mm -hmm. So you're talking hundreds and hundreds of years that people in England are coming in contact with um, people from Al-Andalus, people who, uh, the, a place that as many Northern Europeans said was that was the center of culture mm. in the European world. So it's hard to imagine to some extent that they can't have had a stronger sense of who, of who Muslims were than that. And sort of like the first Archbishop of England, um, Theodore of Tarsus, was he's, he's originally Byzantine, he's born in what is now Turkey, and he actually had to flee Turkey fairly early on because of the Muslim, because of the Muslim incursions. And you see, uh, and you see 
all of these references to the sort of the violence of Muslims in his writing from very early on, from the end of the 600s. So there's all of this information, I, I think, that's that's sort of flooding into England, even in this early point, even hundreds of years before the Crusades. And so even if they're not showing up in artwork, I think that... Um, the Islamic world is having an enormous cultural influence and the, um, the English are very, very aware of that. I mean, Bede, uh, the historian Bede, ends his sort of famous ecclesiastic history by saying, oh, and the other thing that's happened recently, like when he's summing up current events, he's like, and the, and the, the, the Saracens conquered the Iberian Peninsula. Mm. Like that's where he ends with the arrival of Muslims into Europe. Stupid in my head had never really connected the reintroduction of Christianity or a kind of more formal introduction of reintroduction of Christianity from Rome um, to, you know, to being relatively contemporary to an emergence of, uh, of Islam and also perhaps contemporary to the Viking attacks on the British islands as well. I, I um, am revealing my own stupidity here, but I'm not used to thinking of those things together. And that's really fascinating. Yeah. Well, they're not normally talked about together. I mean, a lot, even the narratives and sort of medieval critical race studies right now are about, are about Europe's and England's contacts with the, with the quote unquote outside world that's happening beginning with the Crusades, basically. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk as much about the fact that there seems to have been interactions before that. Mm -hmm. Even though there's plenty of evidence of it, there the Alfred the Great um, uh, writes to a Byzantine writes to a Byzantine patriarch um, in in uh, Jerusalem, I think, um, which at this point is Muslim occupied, and he writes to him asking for hemorrhoid cures. I think um, it's a little like it's a little unclear what he wants, but there's this there's this constant contact happening back and forth. There are words in the in Old English that we can trace back to Arab to Arabic words. Some people have even suggested there's slight influences of um, things like the story of Muhammad on some early, early Old English literature. So it's a world, it's a world that's a lot more um, in contact with cultures um, from outside of Europe and cultures now inside of Europe. Yeah. Um, that I think that we normally think about. Eric, if it's right, we'll move to the final question in a moment. But I'll just summarise where we've got to, um, partly of the benefit of listeners and partly so you can correct me if I've got anything wrong, but I really value and I'm excited by your your emphasis on the contact happening between between worlds which, which our own world teaches us to think of as very separate, very apart, kind of alternative binaries or, or opposites. Um, and you've been making us think about that just now in relation to um, Christian and Islamic contact, for example. But you've also, through the course of the film, made us think about books as multimedia experiences, uh, things which combine text and image. Uh, and again, we live in a, in a culture which radically gets us to think about text only or image only, and in a disciplinary context, which gets us to think that way too. So I've really valued um, you undoing those things. And the final way in which you've got us to think about this is in that very ideological issue of the origins of the English and the way you've encouraged us to think about how, how other the English themselves are when they first start emerging as whatever it is we call them as they first start to emerge as a kind of self-referencing 
um, group. Um, do feel free to correct me on any of that if you want to, but um, I'll, I'll also ask my final question, which is what the word literature means to you. You're welcome to answer that um, from a personal or a professional perspective. You've told us about Alfred the Great telling us that some books are most needful to know. Uh, so we've got some people in our conversation who have a real sense of needing to know books in some way. But what, is, what does literature mean to you? That's a really good question. I mean, I think um, as a medievalist, we're always sort of fighting um, to suggest that this literature that we study is still relevant in some ways. And I think that um, uh, even the literature that, and the literature that we're sort of suggesting is relevant is often not the literature that they would suggest as relevant. So when Alfred says that the books that are most needful for men to know, they're almost entirely books that we don't regularly teach in undergraduate classes. They're Gregory's pastoral care. Like they're, they're, they're these books, they're the, uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy is probably, the is probably the most famous, but they're often not the books that we have selected as being the most important from the medieval tradition. And I think that in a lot of ways, what literature, what I, always want students to get from literature, what I want people to get from literature, from my, uh, from medieval literature, from my public work is, is understanding the, all of the other things that we might not think of as, as, as literary as say the Canterbury Tales or Beowulf or the Arthurian legends, but that were, that played an enormous role in this period. Mm. And I think that part of that is, um, not only recognizing what was important to what was important to medieval people, but pushing back on, as I've sort of said before, on our ideas of what of what the Middle Ages were, because it when you say that a poem like Beowulf is, you know, the 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 the, the high water mark of the Old English period, that's not a neutral claim. I mean, poems like that. Texts like Beowulf have been incredibly taken up by right, far right groups, and there has been there's this incredible investment in that image mm. of the Middle Ages, mm. not the image of the Durham proverbs or of silly medieval um, uh, marginalia, but this image of the Middle Ages as this of the European Middle Ages is this incredibly white, incredibly masculine and incredibly violent time. Yeah. And I think that by expanding our ideas of what medieval literature is and what literature can do, we're also pushing back on the ways that literature is being marshaled right now. Yeah. I mean, I was reading this morning, um, I think it was in the Washington, there's something in the Washington Post, something in the New Yorker about the the, the mob that attacked Capitol Hill this past week. And it was filled with medieval symbols. There was somebody, there were multiple people carry with sort of crusader imagery. One of the men um, with the sort of zip tie handcuffs, the, the ones who seemed to possibly be intent on taking prisoners had uh, image of a crusader as his profile picture on Facebook. Like there's this immense investment in a particular white masculine idea of the Middle Ages. And I think that it's one that 
first of all, the, the Middle Ages themselves wouldn't necessarily have recognized. And it's one that um, I think literature potentially can also push back on, but, it, but which literature has also up until this point often clearly um, bolstered, supported, enabled? Enable, yes. Yeah. Uh, has often, I, it's one that I would say like literature up until this point ha has supported, enabled, if not actively mm -hmm. um, pushed forward. I mean, we know that a number of these people are actually reading medievalists. They're reading these sort of old fashioned narratives of like, oh, Beowulf is the, is the perfect image of what the Middle Ages were. Are the Vikings are the perfect image of what the Middle Ages were. And then you get that horned headed um, uh, QAnon conspiracy theorist with images of Viking, of sort of like Viking tattoos all over his body. Um, and so this is, this is literature, I think, <sighs> medieval literature is an incredibly live issue because it's an incredibly politicized issue. And it's an issue that we that is at the forefront of what is happening politically in a lot of ways because we are having an enormous amount of conversations about how we conceive of the past. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I think what I'm hearing from you is, and I, I like that idea of you know that paradox that as teachers we're constantly trying to think of the relevance of our literature, but at the same time. We live in a world where it couldn't be more live and more ideologically pressing. Um, but I think what I'm hearing from you is we should replace aggressive Vikings and monster killing Beowulf with our sex positive hairs. I still, I'm sorry, I'm going to stick to the phrase hairy sex symbol. I think we should embrace that <laughs> medieval um, art history tradition. Um, Eric, thank you very much. It's been a joy and I've learnt a uh, lot. Hopefully we will get you back because um, I know that we'd love to have you um, in the future. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.